0: Oh, show me the way to go home, I'm tired and I want to go to bed, I had a little drink about an hour ago, and it's gone right to my head, wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing a song, show me the way
1: to go home. This is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia, and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are you drinking and thinking about today?
0: Long time no see, Tim.
1: I know. Well, for our listeners, it's only been two weeks, but for us, it's been about six.
0: It feels like six months in lockdown, not going to lie. So, today, I was planning on drinking a espresso martini. Sure. And I left the house, which is a big deal at the moment. Mm -hmm. I went to to buy some Patron to make my espresso martini. I was also really excited because I've got a packed coffee um, membership that came this morning as well. So it was like perfect. I've got some nice coffee. Gonna go and get me some Patron, make a really nice cocktail. Um, that's all I went to Tesco for and got to the till and I got ID'd. Again, this is oh. like the second time this year I've been ID'd.
1: Is this, is this a bit of a humble brag? Like, look, look how useful everyone thinks I am.
0: Normally it is, but there's a few things. It's like, come on, we're in lockdown for the third time. I just want some booze. Like, I need this. But also, if I was underage, or if I, if I was buying it for kids outside, who's buying Patron to go and sit on a bench and get pissed? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I always think that. There's a sort of quality standard above which you think, I don't need to ID for this, this is too good. Yeah. So
0: for those listening who have not already mourned to about this, I got ID'd in Marks and Spencers. Not long after Christmas, I went to get all the old uh, reduced section wins and there was like a whole aisle of mulled wine and they were selling off really cheap. And I got really excited and I got one of the bottle carriers. I actually asked the member staff to go and get me one. <laughs> I was like, can you get me a carrier, please? I'm going to buy a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: she kindly went to get me the bottle carrier, put six bottles in, carried them to the till. And then again, got ideas for mulled wine. So. How,
1: uh, how was your mulled wine consumption over the uh, Christmas New Year period?
0: It was... Good, because Chris doesn't normally drink a lot of mulled wine, um, but I introduced him to mulled wine with amaretto in it and changed his life, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, we went into a really bad habit of doing at least three bottles per sitting. Um, <laughs> it was bad.
1: That, that yeah. certainly is festive. Well, <laughs> at least <laughs> at least you had the historical background to go with it at that point.
0: So yeah, I'm not drinking an espresso martini. I'm I'm drinking a beer. (laughs) It's uh, the damned pilsner. Uh, I got it through again another subscription box that I've gotten into over lockdown. Is beer fifty two. They send me a box of I think it's eight beers. Never remember by the end. Eight beers a month, which is lovely. And this is one of them, the damned.
1: <laughs> yeah two things one I was gonna say do you think if you plug them enough they'll sponsor it but secondly I was gonna say so um what are you thinking about what's the point of coffee
0: uh yes please sponsor me beer 52 and send me beer or anyone listening even if you're just friends and feel sorry for me send me beer um, yeah, I'm thinking about coffee shops. I miss coffee shops. I, I really, really miss them probably more than most because working from home was the norm for me anyway. Um, I very rarely go into the office. Um, so I used to spend the majority of my time finding really nice coffee shops to work from. And that was pretty much three times a week, at least I'd be in a lovely coffee shop with a nice view strong coffee just working away I loved it um so yeah I am really feeling their absence because I'm just sitting on my kitchen table every day working which is not fun anymore
1: (laughs) I hear you I am in exactly the same boat uh being someone who works from home anyway I was like well this would be totally fine you don't necessarily realize how many times you just pop out for a bit to have a change of scenery and you know go to Mm -hmm. go to cafes or Or the pub or whatever it is it's so much about the set more about the setting than it is the beverage which um i suppose is kind of what this episode is going to be a bit about uh i'm mildly obsessed with coffee shops um particularly the the origin of coffee shops in the 17th century not just the modern ones because i see it as such a big turning point in our social history um, and particularly with regards to Beverages. So, I think I should just get stuck into kind of where it all began, where the coffee shops emerged from, and see where it takes us.
0: Please do. I've not actually ever looked into the history of it. So, looking forward to this one.
1: All righty. Well, what I can tell you is that coffee really started coming into Britain in the mid 17th century. And that was brought in by people like the Levant Company, later the British and Dutch East India companies, and they were, you know, exploring North Africa and uh, the Middle East or Arabia, as they mostly referred to it at that point. Um, And this is a bit before they end up doing more trade over in, um, in East Asia, at this point it's called like Asia Minor. So they're doing a lot of trade over there and they discover that the locals are drinking this thing called coffee. And not only do they remark on, you know, the bitter taste and the health benefits, but right from the start, they talk about the social experience of drinking coffee, that they see the locals drinking it all night through animated conversation and they're amazed at how they're able to stay awake and keep going and keep the brain active so the very from the very first the observances are that coffee has this effect where it enlivens your brain it keeps you awake and it provokes uh conversation so they start bringing it back through their shipping to london and actually the first big coffee warehouses are a stone's throw from where i am right now in shad thames Um, and they Mm. would stock up all the coffee in the warehouses there. In fact, there was a coffee and tea museum there until 2008, uh, run by this one guy, but when he passed away, the museum closed down. But you can still see signs up around there for the coffee museum, Mm. which I think should still exist. I'm tempted to reopen it myself.
0: It still smells like really good coffee around here as well, because you've got the roasters not far.
1: We do, we do have several roasters around here actually. so the coffee's getting imported to there. And initially in Britain, it's more time for its medicinal benefits rather than flavour. You know, at that time, they didn't add milk, they didn't even filter it. So and it would have been, you know, sort of stewed in the morning and then reheated later in the day. So you can imagine it wasn't great in terms of flavour compared to now, but people were still getting addicted to it and getting a buzz off it, and and as we find out, it's more about the setting. One of the reasons it really took off at this time is because 1649 is the beginning of the interregnum. The interregnum is when Cromwell deposed uh, the monarchy, and we have that 10, 11-year period up to 1660, where it is run by government instead um, instead of royalty. And many a time on this podcast have I slated the Puritans, as I'm sure you and everyone else has picked up. It's not in favour of Puritan thinking because generally it's just not as fun. You know, you can't do boozing, we can't do sex, we can't have Christmas celebrations, we can't have theatre, we can't do all the fun things. But I will say this for them, the one good thing they did was (laughs) set the scene for coffee drinking uh, and coffee houses so they're saying you know we should have a more sober society until this point everyone's drinking beer all the time because water wasn't safe so everyone's kind of you know drunk by midday business wasn't as productive as it could have been (laughs) (laughs) and so they were saying well here's this thing called coffee which can still give you a buzz you can still have a social setting for it but it's allowed because it's not um it's not alcoholic so we see the first English coffee house being established in 1650. This is just a year after, um, after the Interregnum, into the Interregnum. And that's at the Angel Coaching Inn, which is in Oxford, um, was founded by a Jewish entrepreneur simply known as Jacob. Can't find much more else uh, about them than that. But it's interesting that the coffee houses all start in Oxford rather than London. Everything starts in London, you would have thought, um, especially with the coffee coming in there, you know, and it being a port, but it was due to the university. It was because they really embraced it as um, an an aid to thought and conversation, and it replaced a lot of the uh, lectures and so forth that you would have in the university. So the students and the academics would come to the coffee house rather than just, you know, staying in the university. And they would continue debating their ideas and so forth. And it sort of started off as this like addendum to the university. But what they did is they opened up to anyone. So you didn't have to be a student or an academic. You could literally be anyone and turn up to these places to start hearing lectures from the university or start hearing debates of things that were going on in the day. And Oxford was a really alternative culture. You know, from the mm-hmm. rest of the country. So they fully embraced this almost bohemian lifestyle. We're obviously, you know, hundreds of years away from the bohemians, but it was almost like that. And as long as you could pay your one penny, you had entrance into the coffee house. For one penny, you would get unlimited refills of your coffee. And you also got access to all the newspapers and pamphlets and things like that. So it was a really big deal. People had access to all this stuff that they didn't have before. And because anyone was allowed in, it meant that people were hearing all sorts of diverse opinions and experiences that they hadn't had before. So it really pushed the levels of what was acceptable conversation. And (laughs) so because it didn't involve alcohol, (laughs) it resulted in a lot fewer punch ups. You know, there was expected to be disagreement, but the expectation was that it would be civil. So you can come in as long as you're not too didactic, you're open-minded and you listen. So it's a really interesting- like it. Yeah, it's a really interesting start there. There's um, one in Oxford called Queens Lane Coffee House, which was founded in 1654. It is still there and open today. It's the longest running coffee house in Europe. So that Ooh. is a long time. Um, In, in 1651, so that's one year after the first one in Oxford. We get one opened by Pasqua Rosé. Rosé, uh, <laughs> spelled R-O-S-E-E actually, not, not like the like wine. But they open one in 1651 in Oxford, and then a year later, they open one in London. Now, Pasqua Rosé is interesting because they're actually Greek or Armenian, they come from Smyrna, which is, Sort of on the Aegean coast, they were employed by Daniel Edwards of the Levant Company. So he, he went out there, Daniel, and employed Pasqua as a manservant and brought him back to to London uh, and then Oxford. And obviously being from that, that region, um, Pasqua Rosé was more familiar with, you know, how coffee was sold and prepared and all that sort of stuff. And so it was through the association with the Levant Company of Daniel Edwards supplying the coffee, um, Pascal Rose running the coffee house uh, in association with other people as well that were sort of the legal business partners. Because being an immigrant, he wasn't allowed sort of the same rights to run businesses um, in British cities. But he opened up um, this one in 1651, which is, was the oldest one in London and still stands as the Jamaica Wine House. it has a sign outside saying Jamaica Winehouse it's still there transformed into something else but um even Samuel Pepys writes about going to that one he wrote in 1660 actually the year 1660 not only did he discover coffee for the first time he also discovered tea for the first time but he just says that he went to the coffee house in Cornhill it was the first time he'd ever been there he found much pleasure in it through the diversity of company and discourse so again like every record I can find of people describing the coffee experience in the coffee houses, everyone comments on the diversity of company and how good the conversation was. So it really is like the main thing about it.
0: Do you think after lockdown coffee shops will maybe start to be like that again? Because kind of more more modern, like nowadays you go to a coffee shop and you just go in and grab a coffee and leave, or you just meet a friend there I, I do have this kind of romantic idea in my head that post-pandemic everyone's just going to want to be friends and chat to people and just really soak it up. And I just love the idea of going to a coffee shop and just chatting to random people. I might just be lonely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is also true. Um, no, I think it's a really good point. I've I've had that romantic idea of what coffee places should be for a long time because of this mm. history. Uh, I, I remember, in fact, I went and spoke to a coffee company a few years back that I was considering working with. we have having Connell on one of those pre-interview chats. And I brought mm-hmm. this up. I said, you know, no coffee company is really embracing this history of having a good social meeting point for people other than just, you know, your immediate friends that you've pre-arranged to, or indeed in education or public discourse or anything like that. Um, it hasn't come yeah. up. I think it's a big opportunity. Whether or not that will happen uh naturally in the 20s, I don't know. I think we're first of all going to be committed to hedonism as well as company. So I don't know if coffee is necessarily going to take that box, but we'll see. <laughs> Just to finish off Pascal Rosé's journey. So not only did he set the one up in Oxford, the first one in London. In 1652. In 1672, he then moved to Paris and set up the first one in Paris. So, quite the progenitor of the coffee houses. 1657, tea is also being sold in the coffee houses, by the way. Tea comes later than coffee in terms of popularity, but it starts off being sold in the coffee houses. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was going to say actually about starting conversations in coffee houses is it was traditional when someone entered one back then to, to ask them what news they have. So you would be expected to come with something, you know, to offer and sort of say, "Oh, this is the news I've just heard from somewhere else, or depending on the area, like give different types of news. Around that time as well, 1659, so remember we're just now one year from the end of the interregnum and the beginning of the restoration when Charles II comes back to the throne. Um, there's an organization called the Rotor Club and they uh, are a group of, well there were all sorts of people really, I was going to say a group of intellectuals, but they came from all walks of life. It was mainly founded by James Harrington, uh, who wrote the book The Commonwealth of Oceania, but they were there to sort of discuss new political structures, political ideas, and the idea was to try and create you know, a more democratic society, to think about republicanism um, and really sort of challenge the way that things were run. Now, according to different sources, there was either, it was just a lot of open thinking, you know, and people could come and debates and so forth. It wasn't, as far as I can tell, a sort of a direct effort to create a new charter to impose in parliament. It was more, what could we imagine? What could we think about that? But obviously, it would be seen as a threat, um, because it gets closed down in 1660, when Charles II comes back on the throne. He's like, I won't have any of that contentious thought about no monarchy, or about greater democracy, or about the rotation of power, uh, or any of that sort of stuff. He actually tries to close down coffee houses, Charles II. He put um, a movement through saying, I want to make them illegal. But it was so popular by that point that the ministers said no they voted it down so you know the, the balance of power has already has already shifted by that at that point but there really is this quite binary feeling of coffee is for the republicans and beer is for the royalists because of what it instills in the general populace yeah exactly um, <laughs> uh, but you can see like the legacies of the rota club not only in the ideals of republicanism that all the people who were there took out and, you know, arguably went on to found the US constitution. Um, but also then, you know, we start to see the dawning of the age of enlightenment, where the emphasis is moving away from individuals being subjects. So you're no longer a subject of assumed authority, like monarchy, you're no longer a subject of religion. Instead, you have to use reason to get you where you want to be. And there's, you know, different commentators put different um, different emphasis on how influential the coffeehouse culture was in the Age of Enlightenment. Some are like, it was just kind of going along with the general culture and zeitgeist. Some people say this was literally the thing that kickstarted the Age of Enlightenment. I have to say, I veer more towards the latter. I actually do mm-hmm. think that without bringing different sorts of people together on an equal footing, it would have been really hard to imagine that sort of freedom. Yeah. So I think it was really important in the Age of Enlightenment. The other thing that the Rotor Club brought along was manners, I think. They had a set of rules into how to conduct yourself with, um, with discourse, with you know, with democratic insight. They had um, anonymous balloting as well. So previously when you would vote on something in different societies, it was all out in the open and people could see what you did, but they took it anonymous so that people felt a bit freer to vote how they should that was adopted by things like the Royal Society, um, and so forth. So I think they, they were really influential in the way they structured the coffee houses, even though they only lasted a year, you can see the way the coffee houses run after that is very much kind of exemplified by the way the Rotary Club operated. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: women. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, were generally not present in the coffee houses.
0: Oh, I was gonna say, please don't tell me not allowed in a coffee house in
1: the 17th century. Yeah, there's a difference of opinion on this as well. So they weren't generally part of the discourse, is is what we know. Now, some people say it's because they were banned from the coffee house, although there isn't really any evidence for that, because there weren't really any formal rules. Mostly, it seems like it's because it was so much about political discourse and theological discourse and things like that, that it wouldn't have been respectable for women to come and enter that conversation. So you do find women turning up at coffee houses that are devoted to things like auctions um, Mm -hmm. or trade because they could be um, enacting on behalf of their household. You Found them socializing in places like Bath. Bath was very liberal in terms of its gender attitudes. So women were allowed to socialize in coffee houses in Bath. Um, They were also allowed to work in them. So coffee houses were owned by women. And they had women working in them, but they just Mm. didn't take part in the conversation. So it's not quite that they were banned, but they weren't invited into the discourse.
0: So they were eavesdropping and planning behind the scenes. I like it. Exactly.
1: (laughs) I mean, actually, there was quite a lot of opposition by women um, of the coffee houses. There was a petition, the Women's Petition Against Coffee in 1674, which uh, they said, newfangled abominable heathenish liquor called coffee had transformed <laughs> industrious virile men into effeminate babbling layabouts who idled away their time in coffee houses. <laughs> so you know, was that uh, was that bitterness or was it a genuine concern that men were no longer paying attention their own domestic duties and were instead too involved in society I mean I think there's lots of interpretations you could have on that but certainly there was there was opposition from the people who were excluded which is kind of fair you
0: imagine that being a modern day annoyance he's almost drinking coffee and chatting
1: (laughs) right (laughs) I mean yeah perspective hun Uh, so, as I say, women were allowed to um, own and run coffee houses. The most famous one was probably um, Mole King, as, mm-hmm. uh, as she was known. It was Tom King's coffee house and then later Mole King. Mole King uh, ran the coffee house near Covent Garden, which um, is, is lampooned in a drawing by Hogarth, and... Um, Hogarth is always so cynical about any kind of beverage, um, we should, we'll do an episode on Hogarth one day, but yeah, uh, it was essentially the prostitutes' um, coffee house. So in as much as coffee houses were established kind of under Puritan ideals, they obviously do develop, and there are certain coffee houses that would also serve alcohol, um, that would indulge in certain vices. So, this one in particular, it opened after the pubs closed. It was like an all-night coffee place that served booze. Um, and also it was like a meeting place for sex workers, so it didn't have any beds, it wasn't a brothel, but it was near one on Bow Street. So they would meet their clients there and then take them away. Um, so she was a very known figure that was that was parodied a lot, but just to point out that the coffee houses didn't sort of stay Puritan. They did evolve according to their locale. So there's quite a few other examples of how they were how they were different. Um Lloyd's, have you heard of Lloyds of London?
0: I don't think I have.
1: Lloyds of London is a massive insurer in the city. Um, and they were originally a coffee house. They were Lloyd's coffee house. Um, in fact, it's now Sainsbury's. Um, in the city, the building. Lloyd still exists. So is they. Like the one?
0: No, where, where is it in the city?
1: It's near Bank. I
0: was going to say, is it near Bank? I know. No. The same streets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I used to work near there.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there were a few around there. There was Jonathan's, um, which was the stock market. So with things like insurance and stock market, the coffee houses were great places for merchants, traders, sailors. All these sorts of people to meet up and make well, either deals in the case of stock market or to um, get some sort of safety assurance in the case of Lloyd's. And you know, they they weren't all, for example, allowed into the Royal Exchange um, because you know they they didn't sort of fulfill the class requirements or or whatever, but they could do that business in the coffee houses. So All of this trading business that happened there that became, you know, more equal and more democratic evolved into these modern city businesses. And they're still like in the same location, even if it's not exactly the same building, they're still there. So that's where Mm -hmm. these ones really came from. Um, In Soho, unsurprisingly, the coffee houses were all about the theatre critics. So they even had um, on the wall, it was um, like a thermometer and uh, which they would indicate the the reviews of the plays that they'd been talking about. And it went from excellent at the top to execrable at the bottom. <laughs> 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 and like the theatre people would go into the coffee houses and sort of see where how their play was reviewed. Uh, yeah, well, gosh. They had similar kind of review system in Westminster for politics based on the politicians' speeches. So the Westminster coffee houses were all about political discussion. Um, if you went slightly further um where is it east from that you've got the royal society locale mm-hmm. and that's where they do all the scientific dem- de- demonstrations so we've got records of um so isaac newton dissecting a dolphin um in the coffee house for all to see which Yum. is just can you imagine no. <laughs> walking into the starbucks <laughs> <laughs> i'll
0: have a sorry what's going on
1: <laughs> yeah. um in Hoxton, that was near like uh, Bedlam and near the asylums. So they would hold like inquisitions on someone's sanity. They would literally take someone from the asylum, wheel them into the coffee house, and then everyone would ask questions and decide whether they were sane or not.
0: I've seen that. It's uh, Jerry Springer. Oh wait, no, Jeremy Kyle, one of them. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's basically that. Yeah, it is. You're right. Um, there was even a floating coffee house. Uh, you know kind of like how the um Tattersall Castle is a is a boat that you can go and have drinks on the embankment they had that mm, yes. even then it was called the folly of the Thames it was just outside Somerset house and that was a coffee mm. house that specialized in um uh, dancing late night dancing so people would go and have waltzes and jigs and stuff into the night Nice that you
0: sounds know. like more fun than watching a dolphin get cut up.
1: I mean, I I've guess I would go to the Dolphin Getting Cut Up one, the Royal Society, because I want to know about the latest science. The only one I wouldn't go to of all of these is probably the Hoxton one. um, And, and the sex worker one. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> just remember, sure. Just remember I started with that one.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> Button House was another one, uh, which was the home of the Guardian newspaper. It's not the current incarnation of the Guardian that we know. It was another newspaper called the Guardian back then. Um, mm. and they had their own publication, as well as obviously being a place to go and discuss the news. They had a letterbox in the wall that was shaped like a lion's head, and you could put, you know, your your stories in there, you could put poetry, you could put anything in there as like a letter submission to the editor. And that lion's head letterbox actually still exists, but not there. It's, for some reason, it's now in Woburn Abbey. Um, but the building has to still exist. It's on Russell Street and it's now a Starbucks. Of course. Oh, it? It? <laughs> but there were it, it became increasingly popular because people went to coffee houses to discuss the news. It became increasingly popular for coffee houses to also be newspapers, to be publishers. And when it started out like that, they were very respectable. You know, it was like properly debated news it was understood people would go and communicate with it and they would employ people specifically as runners some of which were um, mostly boys and they would run between the coffee houses with news and they would kind of come in and go here's the latest news and, and off they would go so it was it was really it was like
0: hilarious. my dream job, just gossip mongering. Yeah, it was like
1: the live action version of BBC News 24.
0: I was going to say Twitter, but sure. Yeah,
1: well, yeah sure. <laughs> I just didn't want to bring Twitter into this because it's not exactly considered discourse, is it? No. I would say Twitter is more like just Hoxton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> It's screaming into the void, isn't it? Uh, So they had these runners, they had individual publications. Um, Arguably, though, this is what led to the beginning of their downfall. So as the publications became bigger, they sort of started to monopolize the the news and the discussions in their own locations. They would become more specific to their members, They would put in special rules for just their members. So it started to move away from this inclusive kind of starting point. They would become private members clubs or they would drastically increase the price uh, to get in Mm. there so that it it ruled people out. They became very snobbish about their own points of view. um, And people sort of really started to disrespect the news because it was based on that locale's ideology as opposed to the diversity of public voices.
0: Imagine, yeah. hey. I was going to
1: say, <laughs> now, is any sitting home a bit too hard right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that was one of the reasons why they started to become less popular. I mean, they, they virtually popped out of existence by the end of the 18th century. Beginning of the 18th century, there were 3,000 in London alone, which you think about the time and the population like that's huge. So that was part, yeah. of, part of the reason. The other reason is that... Um, uh, coffee was in high demand, you know, uh, I was going to say globally, but I mean, like ac- across the across the Middle East and Europe and Asia. Whereas the East India Company that obviously the government had vested interest in was more tied to India and China by the end of the 18th century. And so they had a much bigger stake in tea being popular rather than coffee. They had much more available. They wanted to sell more of it. They could make more money from it and they could control where it came from more easily, so it was partly like government push and government incentive. It became much more popular in the upper classes for tea to be drunk because it could be enjoyed by both genders, and like coffee, which was seen as more masculine. Um, and also, it was just a lot easier to make. You know, we just just pour boiling water on it, as opposed to all the roasting and grinding and stuff that you had to do with coffee. So there were a lot mm-hmm. of kind of practical reasons as well as fashion. But I think the news angle is also really interesting to throw in there. So that's kind of the, the, the birth and decline of the original coffee houses. Um, mm. As I say, I, I, the reason I'm so passionate about it, I think as you can probably come to the conclusion to, is because of what it meant for people's access to information you know, yeah. people who couldn't afford a university or couldn't afford to be part of the royal society, or whatever. All of a sudden, there were all these ideas coming at them about how they can learn for themselves, how they can claim independence, how they should be using reason, and just the idea generally of having a cheap space that people can meet. And as m- as much as I am a fan of the pub, not have to rely <laughs> on alcohol all the time to be out the house, you know. So
0: yeah,
1: I'm a huge fan, and I've. I still feel that sense of loss from not having that kind of setup anymore. What did you dig up in your adventures?
0: Well, I knew you'd probably go down the historic/slash sensible route, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just decided to look into really unusual coffee shops around the world. Oh great! Um, just to see what's out there. Yeah. Um. So our first stop. Is going to be in Paris. Uh, there's a coffee shop there called The Sweatshop um, and it combines coffee and crafts. So every table has got a sewing machine at it. And so you can just rock up, buy a coffee, grab a table and make something. Um, you can also learn if you're not well versed in. Knitting or crafting or sewing or machinery. <laughs> so um, I don't know whether it's the staff that do it or if they do classes or what, but yeah, you can just rock up, buy a coffee, make something and have a lovely time. I'd love to do that. Mm. I've seen, yeah. um, there's similar places. I There's a place near King's Cross. I don't know if it's still there. It's called Drink Shop Do, yeah. Um, yeah. where th- they do similar things where they combine like a cafe with crafts. Um, but I think that was more lean towards like guided classes and stuff where mm-hmm. you can like book on a certain night when they're doing this craft. Whereas it sounds like the sweatshop in Paris is more about, yeah, we've just got all this stuff for you to use. Just come in and do what you want.
1: Access to tools is really cool because for people yeah. who want to have a go on that sort of stuff, it's um, it can be expensive to get started.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: And also, as you say, like for most of those people, if they're freelancers, you don't always want to work from home, do you?
0: Exactly. And it's
1: a bit much to rock up at um, Café Nero (laughs) with the sewing machine. (laughs) (laughs) Can I plug this in?
0: (laughs) Um, So the next one takes us to Moscow in Russia. Not quite as highbrow as crafting with your coffee. This cafe is called The Crazy Toilet and <laughs> it's not just about c- coffee it does food and cocktails and everything else but it's uh, everything there is inspired by toilets uh so they have toilet themed crockery and you can have your kind of bangers and mash served in a little mini toilet um, tea and cocktails are served in mini urinals <laughs> Um, instead of chairs, there are toilets and the walls are all decorated with toilet themed art. So it's very just just about toilets and urinals. It's nothing else. Just that.
1: I had um, I had a private bet with myself as to how long it would take before you did something gross. And I thought it was going to be the third example. So you beat me by one. It was the second. Oh. <laughs> OK,
0: well, let's see what the third one is. Oh, God. Oh, see, this is weird. This is weird. Number three, hit me. <laughs> Number three is called the Snuggery in New York. Any ideas?
1: Um, no, because I'm distracted by what the word "snuggery" sounds like.
0: It probably is what you're thinking, although mm-hmm. it's not. At, it's not as sordid as I don't know. I I think the fact that it's not sordid kind of freaks me out more.
1: Okay. Like <laughs> <No. laughs> so,
0: you uh, can. Rent non-sexual cuddle time with professional snugglers for between 30 minutes or all night. Wow. Um, Yeah. These people. They do specifically say non-sexual cuddles. Yeah, they're people. If it was puppies, I'd be there every day.
1: that's the first thing that popped Uh, into my head was, oh, it could be a puppy. I'm like, no, that's that's probably not.
0: (laughs) No, it's human. They they serve nothing else, though. So it's kind of cheating. It's not a coffee shop. It's oh. a, they, they call itself a cafe but they serve nothing but the company of their employees
1: <laughs> delightful
0: <Next. laughs> I, mean, I have an
1: issue with places that call themselves like coffee places or cafes and they don't actually serve coffee or it's not the primary yeah. thing they do
0: can you imagine searching on Google Maps and finding the snuggery with a little coffee shop site and then getting there and being like oh, no no I just want a cappuccino like- don't touch me <laughs>
1: just wanted to plug in my sewing machine (laughs) what am i supposed to do about this (laughs) okay right
0: (laughs) the next one is the disaster cafe in spain um so it seems like a run-of-the-mill restaurant when you move in move in when you go in um moving in with my sewing machine
1: long-term coffee (laughs)
0: um so the the food is quite good according to TripAdvisor. But the reason it's so popular is that they have simulated earthquakes throughout the day. Um, Everything is designed to withstand a 7.8 earthquake so shit goes down. Uh, The plates and glasses are heavy so they stay put. The staff wear a lot of safety gear Um, there have been no reported injuries yet but they do advise that you uh, prepare for spillages because although the plates and cups and stuff don't move, your food and drinks will
1: I mean it's good advice for life really isn't it prepare for spillages
0: (laughs) I feel like that that could be used as like a training area that cafe for what (laughs) I don't know just for earthquake people (laughs) I don't know like maybe like young children and pets could be like slowly trained to not be scared of earthquakes in there if they live in an earthquake you're
1: you're really reaching
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know I'd go there I'm up for it let's go it's in Spain next is the corner perk in I like this word Bluffton Mm. South Carolina Uh, So nothing really unusual about the decor or the theme or the cafe, no cuddling, no sewing machines, no weirdness. Um, The only thing about it is, is that you're probably going to get your coffee for free when you go there. Because way back before it was popular and social media existed, a woman went in, she wanted to remain anonymous and she gave them $100 and said... I want you to just buy the coffee and food forever, whatever the next few people order until my hundred runs out. I want you to just give it to them for free, but let them know that somebody paid for them and encourage them to pay it forward. And that's just kept going, kept going, kept going. And apparently she goes in there every couple of months and gives them a hundred just to keep it going, which is quite nice.
1: That is nice. I've seen a few places that do that yeah but I think
0: it sounds like this was like one of the first kind of pay it forward cafes I've, mm. I've seen I can't remember I saw it in the news recently actually a pay it forward like that was their whole model was that it was pay it forward or pay what you think it's you know yeah pay what you can pay what you can and yeah which is lovely more of that please I'm going to bring it down to toilet humor again <laughs> Uh, The Attendant in London, Fitzrovia, so it's built around, well, it was built around in 1890, uh, but it was closed in the 60s. It was an underground public washroom. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's closed in the 60s. It lay dormant for 50 years until two friends transformed it into what is now a coffee shop called The Attendant. Uh, The whole space was redesigned, but obviously they've tried to keep some aspects of it. Um, So the... Urinals themselves have been kind of transformed into countertops. So mm-hmm. you can just see the top of the porcelain kind of design of them. So I don't know. That to me is a little bit off putting, but that's Yeah, easy. this. Have a coffee.
1: <laughs> there's quite a few of those in London because there were, you know, there used to be a lot of public toilets yeah. and now there are not many, which mm-hmm. is bad. As much as I appreciate the individual, you know, Places that have done that, I would much prefer to have more public toilets. So the there's the Royal... somewhere um,
0: there's the Royal... not near not far from you. Yeah,
1: so there's there's one um, just off Bermondsey Square called Bermondsey Arts Club, which is a cocktail place, um, mm-hmm. and also the Royal Court Theatre, um, their their basement bar and coffee place uh, used to be the toilets for Sloane Square as well. So there are actually there's loads of them. Um, there's mm-hmm. one at um, Zero Aldwych as well, which is a cabaret bar. Um, nice. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. It's like it sounds cool, but I'd rather have public toilets. I don't
0: know. I really like the Bermondsey Art Club. They're
1: <laughs> You're like, no, no. I'd rather have a drink.
0: But <laughs> <laughs> so their cocktails are very good, so that one can stay as long as they've got a toilet. <laughs> um. I'm looking at the next one. I didn't realise how many of these were (laughs) (laughs) toilet-themed.
1: just had a moment of self-clarity, didn't you?
0: (laughs) We're going from from public toilets in London to the Poop Cafe in Canada. Great. Uh, So a defecation-themed cafe in Toronto. (laughs) I quote, it's fully committed to the theme and serves up desserts in toilet bowls. Guests are welcome to sit on the toilet bowl like seats as they sip water out of urinal shaped cups or snack on toilet paper rolled... What is that? Toilet paper rolled ice cream. What? I've no idea what that is. That's exactly what it says here. Snack on toilet paper rolled ice cream.
1: Do you think that's ice cream rolled up to look like toilet paper? Or do you think... I mean, I can't think what else it could be, actually. No, but <laughs> but don't would be it would be edible.
0: It must be. I'm going to have to look into that. Wow. Well. <laughs> next. <laughs> uh, next is... I don't know how, how you pronounce it. As Welsh people, we pronounce it Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Well, I can Van tell g- you this,
1: the rough Dutch pronunciation is Van Gogh.
0: I'm not going to say it that
1: so, way. So van is more like fun. 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 And then goth is, it's the first G is like a ho, and then the end is like loch, koch, fun coch.
0: Fun Okay. Fun Kok it is. Fun oh, is bipolar. Fun Yeah. <laughs> That's his name now. Right, fun coch is bipolar that's the name of this coffee shop in the philippines um it's a mood healing sanctuary in the philippines just outside manila the cafe is made up of several rooms nooks and walls each charted on a provided map guests can add their darkest secret to the walls of the i can't speak guests guests can add their darkest secret to the walls of the darkest healing room and their loves to the love red wall then sip on mood boosting teas. So yeah. okay. if you've got if you've got a dark secret and a love that you feel you need to share, you can write it on the designated walls and have mood boosting tea.
1: I don't think I have either of those, but I do like tea.
0: So I'm looking at the uh photos of this place and the dark curse healing room wall is um it's like a UV wall, so you can't actually read things until you've yeah. got a UV light on it, which would make sense.
1: Like a crime scene.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> so don't don't spunk in there, is what we're saying.
0: I bet somebody has. <laughs> just to see. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's
1: more that's more Pollock than uh Funcock.
0: Funcock <laughs> just on the wall. Ah, next. <laughs> um So this is a chain of cafes around Arizona, Toronto, Tempe, different areas called Snakes and Lattes. Um, I added this one because we are big fans of board game cafes and I felt like I was doing a disservice if I didn't mention one. So, yeah, they've got libraries of over a thousand games and you can just book a table, grab a coffee and play board games. I miss it so much
1: oh me too i love that sort of stuff it is funny though isn't it how these places are always named after games that no one in them would ever play yes imagine going to a board game cafe and playing snakes and ladders you would get I you bet they right haven't out. got it you'd be asked to leave
0: i bet they haven't got it i'd kick off i'd be like it's your name come on mm. Um, and then my final one. Mm-hmm. It's not actually a cafe. It's what could have been. Okay. Um. So the the idea was from a businessman called Bradley Chave from Geneva, and he wanted to open a Felicia Cafe in Paddington, uh, where basically it was a very simple idea. Guys, it was obviously aimed at. Bloody heterosexual men, because it was gross. Um, guys could go and just pick an escort via an iPad, grab a coffee, sit down, and get
1: sucked off. Wait, 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 wait! Via an iPad? Yes. So this is modern. So, yeah. I thought. I thought that concept would we'd be back in like 18th century or something.
0: Nope, it was the early noughties. Do uh. this. So you'd, yeah, grab your coffee and then use an iPad. Um, And I'm all for using iPads to order drinks and...
1: (laughs) I was wondering (laughs) what you were going (laughs) to (laughs) say.
0: I I love those places where you can use an iPad and get stuff brought to you, but I have no interest in oral sex via an iPad. Thanks. Um, What irks me the most, on top of all this, I've already said, is that (laughs) the plans that he'd drawn up was for it to seat up to a hundred in a Baroque-themed splendour. They would also have some private booths for the shy guys. Can you imagine just being sat in a room full of men getting sucked off and you could all just look at each other? No.
1: And it's Baroque.
0: Ugh, it's horrible. (laughs) so bad. What
1: What would Paddington Bear say?
0: Well, he'd say how much? And I can tell you that prices start at fifty pounds, with a ten pound top-up fee for any experience that lasts over fifteen minutes. Like top-up price, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like if I was I'm speaking as a woman, I don't know. I'm not a heterosexual creepy man that's sitting in a coffee shop having a blowjob. But I feel like I'd struggle to. Finish in 15 minutes. I'd get stage fright if so there were hundred guys in there.
1: I think you're I think you're wildly overestimating men there. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I just
0: feel like I'd be like, right, 15 minutes is gone, that's 50 quid. Oh, another tenner, another tenner, another tenner. I'd be like, love, just give up. <laughs> it's not it's not happening. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, that was um do you remember when, you know, we were talking about the dawn of the age of enlightenment?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then I brought it round to fallatials in cafes, yes.
1: Well, you know, thanks for the journey. It goes to show <laughs> that we haven't necessarily evolved as a species.
0: To be fair, I did feel slightly relaxed when you said about dissecting a dolphin I was like oh that's pretty gross and then I remembered oh I've got to talk about Felicia cafe at some point
1: yeah exactly <laughs> I mean you know at least that was for the benefit of scientific advancement
0: I, there, there must be some kind of social experiment in this that we can learn from uh, I guess the fact it didn't happen we can take something from yeah
1: there. yeah at least it didn't happen that is good news yeah um all right well I feel like that means you've brought us up to the modern age, so I thought I'd round off with um, <laughs> just a little bit of when the new chains came about, because I suppose they're sort of, you know, the antithesis of the uh, <laughs> the original coffee houses, really.
0: Yeah, I um, oh, love hate relationship with the chains, if I'm honest.
1: Same. I, I love the convenience. I'm not anti the taste of most of their coffee, like some snobs pretend to be. Um, You know, some there's nothing better when you're in a a small town somewhere that's not your home, and you just think, oh, they've got one of those, I'll go there. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, anyway, I won't go into the reasons why they're not not so good because you probably all have your own opinions. But what I was gonna say is London's longest-running um coffee place was opened in 1949, which is Bar Italia in Soho. So that sort of signals to you when they start to re-emerge. I think a lot of them um, were as a result of Italian immigrants after the Second World War. Mm -hmm. When they settled down, you find most of them, they they were founded by either Italian immigrants or children of Italian immigrants. So that's what you're looking at from the post-war period. So Bar Italia was the longest one in London, but that's not a chain. The earliest chain I've got is Costa, which again, Italian immigrants um, in London. And they opened their roastery in, 1971 and then in and that was to like supply the local area um you know the cafes and stuff or whatever but then in 1978 they opened a shop in Vauxhall and that's the earliest kind of chain we have one then Costa are now the biggest in the UK actually they're the biggest yeah
0: they
1: yes hmm. uh, they're now owned by coca-cola of course as of 2019 part of yeah. So the next one is 1983, which is Pret-a-Manger, and they opened in Hampstead. Mm -hmm. And then Starbucks arrived on our shores in 1998. And that was on the King's Road in Chelsea, which is still there as well. Starbucks had such an explosion in the 2000s. I remember that there was a point in London on like Villiers Street, between Charing Cross and Embankment. If you stood there, you could see three Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> there was one, um, there was one on the strand, there was one about halfway down Villiers Street, and then there was one at the bottom. And yeah, I used to work there for a while, um, for a week, handing out free newspapers.
0: <laughs> oh, was <laughs> yeah. it the London night?
1: It was, it was London. I
0: love the London light. Yeah. I was genuinely yeah. sad when that went away.
1: <laughs> I Me, mean, not so much. So, um, yeah, I was handing out free London lights for a week around Embankment. And I just remember standing there and looking, seeing three Starbucks and I was like, this is life now. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so those, anyway, that's kind of like where, when things started ramping up, it was around Um, the dawn of the 21st century, really, where everything became a chain coffee shop. There was one more that I was going to mention, though. It's not a chain, but the Tate Galleries, actually, Mm -hmm. they sell so much coffee that they have their own roastery. And Mm. it's based at Tate Britain in an old World War II bunker.
0: Nice. they have
1: their own roastery They produce 22,000 kilos of uh, coffee per year. And not only is it tasty, I will say that for nothing, um it's also a non-profit so all their money kind of goes back into supporting the arts at Tate and they also support gender equality programs uh, among their growers so actually I think it was last year 65 percent of the growers were women uh, for Tate nice. coffee. so when you're in Tate do have a coffee Good.
0: do they sell it online as well
1: maybe I know you can buy bags of it in like in the gallery but I don't know if they're much of an online supplier because obviously they've got to you know they've got to supply the galleries as well but
0: Mm, I Uh, might look into it. Perhaps nowadays
1: they are. They might indeed be doing that. But yeah, they're they're a option. I think that's me done. I just
0: want to give a special uh, shout out, because we're talking about chains, to Cafe Vagina.
1: Mm. (laughs) Yes, Cafe Vagina. How (laughs) you are missed. Do you want to...
0: I don't know the real name.
1: (laughs) It's it's Cafe Vignano.
0: Okay, Cafe Vignano. So that was a delight. It's I don't think they have many. I think it's a London chain, right? I don't think I've seen them outside London.
1: I I don't think I've seen them outside London.
0: Um, But it was a small coffee shop opposite where we used to work in Holborn, And they just had a really, really, really good coffee. And they also had a really good hot chocolate as well. Yeah. Like proper hot chocolate, like that was like thick melted. Like
1: soup. Chocolate.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I just used to like the fact that they'd put the little chocolate coated coffee beans on top of your coffee as well. Mm. So added extra. Mm, I think out of all of the chains, that's my fave.
1: You're going to explain why we call it vagina.
0: <laughs> you can. <laughs>
1: I mean it was pretty much just because as still is the case you can't remember what it's actually called.
0: (laughs) Cafe Vagina. It
1: had a V, a G and an N in it so therefore it became Cafe Vagina and we used to regularly go for um, work breaks from Microsoft to um, (laughs) go and have a chat at Cafe Vagina.
0: Oh, those are the days we were discussing that yesterday how we used to spend next to no time in the office even though we <laughs> worked in an office
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> I didn't even tell you what I was drinking by the way at the top of the episode I'm drinking a coffee oh. now
0: oh just, so
1: just so at least one of us is you know as usual relevant to the theme <laughs> not just Well, I thought about doing this but then I had a beer.
0: No, I drove all the way to Tesco and got humiliated, is what I did. To walk out empty handed again. Just so young looking. It's a curse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You are a curse. And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to go down the all night Cafe Nero to debate the merits of donut economics. Cheers, everybody. Be mm, donuts, do mm. economics.